Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Ben Golden, who runs the product organization at Stream. Ben, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I am a software engineering engineer by education. I went to uh, CU Boulder here in Colorado and got my degree in computer science. So I, when I was going to school, I knew that I wanted to work in technology, but I kind of never expected to really be writing code eight hours a day. But at the time, the going to school in you know, like 2005 to 2010-ish, I didn't really appreciate that product management was a field at all. So I didn't at all expect to be doing what I'm doing today. But, uh, you know, here I am, kind of a circuitous path to get there. But, you know, started as a software engineer, worked for several years, turned into an engineering manager, worked closely with a product manager. And then, uh, you know, kind of a weird just timing issue. We had some staffing changes and I wound up kind of leaning into the product side for a little bit to help out. Realized that I actually really liked doing product management and so applied for a full-time gig and, and made the switch over to product management. So what did you like about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that that I really liked about it, I mean, there's a lots, lots of things about product management that I've come to love. But the first thing that really caught me was just kind of the like force multiplier effect that you can have as a product manager. Like as, as an engineer, you write some code, the code's done, it goes, gets shipped and cool customers can do things now, right? But the, the way that a good product manager can kind of facilitate the ability of that team to get more done with less, like less time, making things clearer for the team so they have less questions, less interruptions, you know, and just kind of streamlining that whole software development lifecycle was just like really appealing to me. I just felt like I could add so much more value than I could as just an individual person, you know, contributing code. Awesome. So got into product management because of that and never looked back, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell me about the process of getting to stream and the big problems you're solving there. Sure. Yeah. So I worked for a company called SendGrid for a very long time. I think nine years in total. Well, I guess technically eight years for SendGrid and one year for Twilio after SendGrid was acquired by Twilio. So I'd been there for a long time, started the company when we were like 20 people, grew to something like 400 while we were still SendGrid. And then when, when we joined Twilio, we were thousands suddenly. Uh, so much different company when I started than where I got to. And I definitely enjoyed the whole ride. But like towards the end there, I started thinking I'd really like to get back to a smaller company and have like a little bit less process uh, or like bureaucracy and a little bit more, you know, just kind of getting stuff done, like being nimble, like exploring new opportunities, all that sort of stuff. So found my way to Stream. And, you know, Stream is a much similar product to what I was used to working at with Sangrid and Twilio. API solution that, you know, kind of empowers people to build things faster. The way we talk about it is kind of cloud components. So, you know, these components that lots of different businesses need that it's kind of silly for people to build themselves and instead they can purchase and integrate with an API and get much, you know, much more value for much less effort by just purchasing something rather than building a whole tech stack for, for say, sending email or building chat, et cetera. So that's, you know, kind of to this latter part of your question, that's really like what we're trying to solve now is 
to kind of carry this journey forward of building cloud components. Um, you know, you've seen this with companies like SendGrid, Twilio, Stripe, that are like building these components that so many businesses need, and it becomes less and less efficient for developers to build their own billing system, to build their own email system, et cetera. And so Streams has two products. One is a feeds API. So if you're building like a social feed or a notification feed, something like that, you don't need to build all that back in to like manage it, fan out activities to different users, all that sort of stuff. And then Stream's second product is just a chat API. So you want to build chat into your application, we'll manage all that, the storing your messages, users, channels, all that sort of stuff. And really like those are just kind of the way we see it, just the first two that we've started with. We think of ourselves as a cloud component company that's really going to continue to build these API building blocks that allow customers to serve their customers more efficiently by focusing on their core competencies and not worrying about the you know communication technology and other very repeatable technology that pretty much every business or a great many businesses have to build. I see more and more people kind of taking subsets of the functionality of an application, right? And in your case, it's, it's very much API driven. Uh, why are we seeing that more and more? Uh, and how do you see APIs continuing to be used in the future? Yeah, very interesting topic, very close to my interest. I mean, I think the way I think about it is actually uh, like kind of like Legos, right? So we all played with Legos growing up. And, you know, the nicest things about Legos is that they've created like this standard mechanism by which you can build, right? There's this, you know, categoristic little circle block that you kind of connect things on. And because of that, you can have Legos of all these different shapes and sizes and create all sorts of creative, interesting things. And I think, you know, APIs are fundamentally just kind of like that same connection construct uh, or contract that allows software to be so much more than it could be otherwise. I think, you know, the further we get as a human society, right, of like building more and more technology, the more we can kind of stand on the shoulders of giants and like leverage the things that have people have learned before us. And APIs are like just, you know, kind of a huge enabler in that space that allows us not just to take ideas and reuse them, but take actual software and reuse them and, you know, save ourselves tons of time by not building the same things over and over again, but rather just connecting the right pieces together to create something new and different out of a bunch of different pieces that would have taken, you know, maybe years to build, but now maybe only takes months. Yeah. I Acceleration of this trend? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. I mean, I think, you know, the companies that are doing this kind of stuff are having like lots of success. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's variable depending on kind of what sort of solution that you're building. But I think, you know, there's there's lots of monolithic companies. You know, Twilio, for example, has had so much success as a company doing this with several different products, you know, SMS, acquiring SendGrid with email and all sorts of different connectors for um communication technologies that people just then don't have to rebuild themselves. And I think, you know, you're seeing like more and more competition in those spaces, more and more people just building those kind of same building blocks that can be reused and more and more things becoming potential candidates for those building blocks and, you know, becoming API services that we wouldn't have thought of before. I mean, you know, chat's a great example with what Stream's doing. If you thought about building chat as an API solution that you can kind of just plug into your application, say, I don't know, five years ago, it probably would have been like, well, that seems like a little bit far-fetched. Like that's quite complex thing to just like have as a, an API that you connect in your product. But, you know, we just get better at APIs and get better at integrating and like more accustomed to SDKs and all sorts of the, all of the tools that allow us to do these things. And I think, yeah, absolutely. It's accelerating. 
How, how does it fit with the no code movement or how do you think it fits? Do you mm. see like some merging of this in the future? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think they're really just like the same movement, but with different personas kind of, right? Like, you know, the whole drive behind APIs, like I was saying before, is just kind of like the concept of reusing things, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like making more with less. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing on the kind of no code side of things, you know, stuff like there's a lot more value that people can access if it becomes increasingly simpler and there's less barriers of entry to connect things together. You know, so you get tools like if this, then that and Zapier and stuff that are, you know, making even the, the gluing of APIs together accessible to people who don't write code. Right. And I think, you know, you're going to continue to see that sort of stuff. And as this API market accelerates there, eventually it, it, it will slow or, or maybe not like slow, but like get almost like replaced by like, how do we make this so simple that anyone who's capable of using a computer can connect these things together and build new and different things, not just software developers? Yeah, that's interesting. Right? I've been thinking about that a lot lately, being more prescriptive in how we help people accomplish tasks, do things. Yeah. You mentioned COVID, right? When you were talking about, you know, your stop before stream. Talk to me about how how you see product management being affected in the time of this, you know, pandemic. Have you guys seen your North Star metrics or roadmaps change a lot? And how has that caused or, or not caused any pivots? Yeah, I mean, I think it's super interesting. Like one of the things that I've observed, you know, not just myself, but also with like product manager colleagues is how much it varies. You know, like some businesses have actually been quite propelled by the pandemic, you know, like digital communication services have just become all the more important and relevant. And so, you know, some businesses, stream is certainly one of them that's like, there's just more opportunities, there's more businesses looking for the kinds of solutions that we're providing. On the flip side, you know, there's, there's businesses who's, you know, if you're like in the hotel industry, for example, I'm sure you're, you're just struggling to keep the growth rates up as people just stop traveling. And so that's like really interesting. I mean, I think it kind of varies based on product, but certainly for myself at Stream, we've had to kind of think more about, you know, kind of more complex use cases than we might've considered before. You know, there's been a massive shift of conferences onto digital platforms. So rather than, you know, going to the Moscone or whatever and and having an in-person conversation, stuff's happening online. And so like the features that we're exposing in our chat are trying to keep up with the kind of more complex and more creative features and solutions to the interactions, to taking those interactions from the real world into the digital world. So that's like super interesting, exciting. And though, it, I mean, I'm sure it varies, you know, there's, there's probably companies that haven't felt any sort of push like that. As far as like metrics and that sort of thing, like I think for for us at Stream, like it hasn't changed a ton. I mean, but I think we're also kind of on the, the nicer side of the COVID impact, right? Like for companies that are a little more squeezed by the changes, I would imagine, and I've actually, you know, kind of anecdotally heard from colleagues that this is, is a thing that like one of the big changes is kind of having more cash on hand if you're a growing startup to make sure that you can kind of weather the storm. And so thinking more carefully about like how you're spending resources, obviously you still want to be growing, but you know, you also don't want to run out of money before whatever it is that you depend on that is no longer as prevalent in the economy comes back. Yeah, what what metrics do you guys use? And being an API company, I, I'm curious about what guides your product adoption, your engagement. You know, specifically, what metrics you know, your product team uses. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, top level, same as everybody else, right? We're concerned about growth numbers, NPS, all that sort of kind of typical business stuff. But, you know, at, uh, on the lower level, some of the things that we think about is, you know, kind of adoption of our various SDKs. So, you know, stream somewhat different from some API providers out there. Since stream is building a chat solution, we can't really just give out APIs. APIs alone are not really enough to build a chat solution very rapidly. You've got to also provide some UI components and like logical interaction components inside of an application. So we also um, publish open source APIs across various different languages and platforms so that people can build that chat application much faster. So, you know, one of the things we pay attention to a lot is like who's using which platforms. So an interesting one is, you know, we have native iOS and native Android SDKs, of course, to build mobile apps. But then we also support SDKs for React Native, so writing JavaScript code that can compile to native code for both iOS and Android at the same time. And Flutter, which is, uh, you know, written in Dart and does the same thing, compiles to native iOS and Android applications. So it's you know, very interesting for us to kind of watch the usage across all of those and kind of understand the trends. Like, obviously, there's there's huge advantage to being able to build one code base, one application that can deploy to both mobile devices rather than having to build two independently. But you also kind of lose out if you take that approach on some of the functionality that are available in native iOS or native Android. And so we we watch very carefully, like kind of like how customers are using those different platforms. That's something we care a lot about and like thinking about adding additional platforms. Yeah, that's just one example. We have like tons of different SDKs across many different languages. So we're always kind of trying to watch what is gaining in popularity in terms of language and platform. We also care a lot very similarly about our SDK versions. So what versions of our APIs or of our SDKs are customers using? Are they, you know, kind of upgrading to the latest versions? Are they getting the latest features? Are they staying behind on an older version for some reason because of some change we've made? Or is it, you know, a constraint around just bandwidth on their side of things to not go invest into kind of upgrading and making some changes to to accommodate that upgrade? So like all those things on the API side, we're trying to keep a very close eye it's on. It's usually, you know, the actual numeric metrics are usually just the beginning, right? There's also the the more anecdotal story to kind of unpack and talk to customers and, and see why these things are happening and what people are really experiencing. So, you know, talking about the different platforms, what what is gaining in, in popularity? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Flutter is actually doing quite well. Um, Flutter Dev Conference, March 3rd coming up here. And I think, you know, there's attendance of that is pretty high and like going to be quite interesting to see what the Flutter team announces there. That's, uh, you know, Flutter is basically a framework on top of the Dart language and like fairly young, but I think growing rapidly, we're seeing like a lot of popularity in that space. So that's very interesting. I mean, I think we also see a lot of usage of the native mobile applications as well. So, I mean, I don't think it's, we're going to see them like disappear in the next like you know, year or two or anything like that. But definitely like there is some significant momentum building with those kind of build once, deploy to both devices options for, for mobile. Yeah, I would expect that. I'm interested too. You're you're talking about SDK adoption, right? Are customers generally behind? What do you guys say? <laughs> yeah, I mean it varies, but yeah, definitely. There's <laughs> that's like one of the hardest things about having an API product. You know, whether you're versioning on an SDK or even just versioning your API directly, you know, there's you create this contract uh, of how your API is going to interact. And then as your product evolves, you inevitably are going to hit a point where you want to change something, where there's a feature you'd like to introduce 
that will require you to release some sort of breaking change. And, you know, the, the best solution that uh, <laughs> the software community has come up with is versioning, right? So like, all right, you stay on this version, we'll release a new version that breaks whatever you're using, but you just don't upgrade. And so, you know, you can carry on just fine. But that makes it very hard for the person managing the API or the SDK, right? You've now got multiple versions to maintain and you have to kind of like do this balancing act of, you know, how much do you fix? How far back do you try and fix things to keep customers like satisfied with older versions of things? And how much do you kind of coax them or, or you know, use the, the carrot to uh, entice them to upgrade to newer versions and all that sort of stuff. It's, um, and, you know, it's also like, that's a challenge that spans not just development and product, but also well into, you know, marketing and customer success teams as well. Lots of kind of interaction and thinking through communication strategies and all that sort of stuff to make that as seamless as possible for customers, but as, you know, kind of productive and progressive as you can for your own business. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting and, and I'd love to get dig deep on your insights. Obviously, anytime you're doing a, a, an SDK for mobile, you have some of these issues, right? So what are your policies? Like if I'm a, an entrepreneur out there thinking about starting a company that has any kind of you know SDK, I'm going to have to deal with these same issues, right? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest piece of advice I give is just like communicate early and often with your customers, right? So like if you're going to deprecate an older version, you want to give customers as much advanced notice as you can and really like create some sort of cadence to communications to keep it on their radar as like the clock ticks down, right? Like And what's you know, a good you, amount? I mean, we Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the depth of the change, right? Like there's some breaking changes that are maybe like a, you know, one line code change to like update to. And so like there, you know, you can be like a little bit more aggressive, like maybe give a few weeks or a month. But like, we've just recently released a a major version bump of our iOS SDK. And basically the entire way that you interact with the SDK has changed, right? So like, if you were going to go from version two to version three, you would have to invest like some days, maybe even weeks to upgrade your kind of like integration with our SDK to, to go from one to the other. And so we want to like give people as much advanced warning as possible. And like, you know, in, in that instance, right, we're, we have no plans to deprecate V2 of our SDK. I mean, eventually I'm sure we, I mean, we won't necessarily deprecate it, but we won't support it anymore. And so like, you know, we just want to like make sure we announce that and communicate it and, you know, kind of provide good resources to make that transition. So like we've built like a, a guide for upgrading from 2.0 to 3.0 and just kind of like specifically highlight the way things change and how you can like, you know, kind of update your code interactions to catch up to that latest version. So, you know, I think it's like so many things. It's just like communication is, is like the best solution, which can be tough, but well worth it. So let's talk about deprecation. What advice would you give people out there about deprecation, right? Because now we're not just talking about giving them a heads up that you can move from two to three, but if you're giving them a heads up that X old version is going to be deprecated, you know, you talked about a kind of what I would say is an interim step, maybe a permanent interim step, but nonetheless an interim step, which is like, I'm not supporting this old version. Talk to me about how you, how you manage that process from a product standpoint and what advice you'd give to PMs out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's still all about communication fundamentally. I think, you know, we actually are currently going through a process of releasing a new version of the dashboard for the stream application. And we are definitely going to deprecate V1. It's just like maintaining it is, you know, just like more effort than it's worth. But we wanted to make sure we did it as smoothly as possible. So, you know, first we, what we did there, so as a UI, this is 
opposed to an API, but I think the strategy is fundamentally the same. So we we introduced like the new version of the app, which is just like a banner at the top of the UI saying like, here's the new thing, you can go check it out. Kept the V1 around so like they can, users can hop back if they're missing some functionality or like an interaction better in V1. But you know, it's just like there and available. And we also included right there in that call to action, a like feedback form that you can just like submit stuff. And we like watch that closely and like try to see if customers like found things that were missing. And of course they did. And then, you know, we'd like close those gaps uh, as we got that feedback. And then we hit a point where we kind of swapped the order. So rather than V1 being the default and you can try out V2, we made it so that V2 is now the default. And if you need to, you can revert back to V1. Still, of course, have that form and like nothing's going away, but, you know, just kind of like one step there. And then we kind of like waited until we stopped getting feedback requests or like feedback that things were missing. Once we had seen gone like a month without any feedback that anything was missing, we said, okay, cool. Green light to start the process. And so now we're sending a communication to to customers saying, all right, we're going to deprecate this in a month. So please, you know, let us know if there's anything you're missing, you know, basically just try and place a little bit more urgency around giving us feedback for any gaps. And then we'll go a month, see what we get. And then, you know, we'll probably actually do a fake removal, right? Like just like take away the V1, but not like actually deprecate all the services and stuff, be able to just like at the flip of a switch, put it back if we need to. Because, you know, sometimes all this communication, even though you're trying to be, you know, as as kind of thorough as you can, like people just like don't respond to you maybe. And so, you know, I would say, and I've been on the other side of making that decision incorrectly where I've like deprecated something and then realized after the fact that we're missing something and now some big customers like super upset and like you're now in like a scramble to try and add a feature in like short order that they really need. So like, don't do that. <laughs> Learn from my mistakes. I would say like, you know, like go through as gradual as a process as you can. And when you finally make that final step, like make sure that you have uh, ripcord to like go back to returning that thing that, that you've removed if you need to temporarily to kind of like ease the pain. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the big difference in the API or the SDK would be that, you know, in, in the dashboard, you're really giving them information, visibility data that they need, but you're probably giving it to them hopefully in a, in a new, better way maybe missing some stuff they want. I understand working through that process. In the API SDK case, you know, if it's deprecated, their app doesn't work or a portion of their app doesn't work. So anything on timeframes as you think about that? Like, you know, knowing people are gonna have to rewrite code if you deprecate something, you know, any advice on timeframes for the the PMs out there? Yeah, I mean, I would say like, generally my rule of thumb is like, if you're gonna deprecate something major that like will break apps in like significant ways and take significant time to repair, you should give customers as close to a year of lead time as you can. I've deprecated products in the past where we've done exactly that. We'll say like a year from today, this is going away. And then we, you know, kind of like just gate communications throughout that time period, encouraging people to give us feedback, you know, even like soliciting customer interviews with users who we can like, you know, go talk through it with them and make sure there's nothing that we aren't missing in some of the more, you know, lower fidelity communications of like text. So yeah, I would, I would say shoot for a year. Sometimes it's not feasible just like due to business constraints. I've been in that situation as well. But like, you know, if it's something substantial, like deprecating an entire product, for example, um, I think it's the right thing to do is to, to give your customers plenty of notice so that they can work that into a roadmap. So the other thing that's interesting, obviously, is, is PMs, you know, for those of us who are used to an office culture, the majority of us at this point are, are remote. Talk to me about how that's affected you in managing the product org. Yeah, it's. I mean, 
it's interesting. Like I'm, I'm actually probably like not the most interesting person to speak on this topic because stream is already like a fairly remote company. We, um, our two founders are Dutch and Italian respectively. And so we, uh, and lived in Amsterdam before they moved to the States and started stream. So we actually have both a Boulder office and an Amsterdam office, and we have a lot of engineering out of the Amsterdam office. So we've already been doing kind of the remote thing even before the pandemic. But, you know, it's definitely like one step more, right? Like now everybody's like calling it from their their homes, not from their respective offices. And like even kind of the pockets within the two offices have a harder time communicating and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, I think two things that I would say are like the first is just like the value of like, of course, you've got to have Zooms and continue to communicate that way, but also like the value of trying to enrich the other types of communications that you have, like we have very lively kind of Slack channels at stream. Like people are very engaged in, you know, off topic channels, as well as just like in the actual, like getting the work done channels, you know, like our gift game is quite strong. Our custom Slack emojis are, are plentiful. Like people are, are like finding ways to communicate with each other, like a bit more creatively and like have the nuance that you would normally have with like facial expressions and tone of voice and all these sorts of things, but through digital mediums. So I think that's like something that that's really worked well for us. And I encourage people to do just like, you know, embrace the like meme culture of, of the 21st century and like make the, the digital communication as fun as you can. And then, you know, conversely, like there's just there's no substitute for for actually talking to people. So we've like tried to be creative in how we, um, you know, have like kind of social events, even though they're, they're digital. So like we, before the pandemic stream would do team lunches where we'd all just like go down to a restaurant on Pearl street in Boulder and like have lunch. Obviously we can't do that now anymore, but we just like kind of do the next best thing. We give everybody a stipend to expense some DoorDash and then like be at their desk and do like some fun, like kind of lunch zoom call stuff to kind of keep some social interaction going. Like just the other day we did a thing where, everybody uploaded a, a childhood picture of themselves. And then like the person facilitating would just kind of go through and show the picture. We'd all try and guess who it is and, you know, kind of laugh about the awkward family photoness of, of them all. And, you know, like we've done several events kind of like that, where we're just trying to be as creative as we can about like getting people on a call and having some fun and, and spending some time together, even though it's on a Zoom. What's the remote stack look like? I mean, you mentioned stack, you mentioned, or you mentioned Slack, you mentioned Zoom. What else are you guys using to facilitate remote? I mean, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, Zoom, Slack, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, like so many engineering organizations, we use Jira to like track tickets and all that sort of stuff. I think, you know, that's that's pretty much the base of our stack, like fairly simple. We've also experimented with like other tools. In fact, some of our customers, so you know, we're, we're building chat APIs and like a lot of our customers are using those APIs to integrate into live event platforms. So we've played a lot with a lot of live event platforms, like hop in and run the world for like some of our kind of team events, which are, are like very engaging and interesting, right? Like kind of like mixes up the, the kind of feature set. I, you know, mentioned this in a, a topic we were talking about a little earlier where we have to be a little bit more creative and thoughtful about some of the features in our chat API as the kind of needs of digital interaction evolve. So, you know, these, you know, kind of platforms that have like video conferencing, but also like dynamic breakout rooms, but then also rich chat experiences where you're, you know, can kind of like initiate 
coffee chats, I think is like one of the platforms calls it where you can like, you know, just be chatting with someone and then like kind of quickly do like a breakout video call, things like that. So we've like, I would say we've more like dabbled in some of that. Like we'll have events on some of those platforms for some of our company stuff. And we've also even talked about that we haven't bit the bullet of doing this, thought about building our own like internal chat product for our like kind of communication, like dog fooding our own APIs, like rather than using Slack, we use like our own kind of like home rolled chat solution. But you know, like Slack is a big company who's obviously put a lot of time into building their solution. So building that whole rich UI is maybe more investment than we're after at this particular moment. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about hiring. You know, all these PMs are always interested to hear in what hiring managers and product look for. What do, what do you look for in a PM? Yeah. So, I mean, at a company like Stream, where like our products are APIs and SDKs, it's like fairly different. Like all of my job titles are technical product manager because I, I definitely like have to look for people who are technical product managers. And, you know, I think the most succinct way to sum up what I, how technical I mean when I talk about technical product managers is that you have to be at least technical enough to use your own product, right? Like it, you can't manage a product effectively if you can't at least like use that product and understand what it's like. Obviously you are not necessarily the target user, but like you need to at least be able to walk a mile in the shoes of your customer in that regard. At least that's that's my opinion. And so we've got to like hire technical product managers who, you know, may not have been software developers in a full-time capacity or something like that, but can write code, you know, at least as functionally, right? Like in the, in the way that maybe I could say that I speak French, not actually fluent and and you know, comfortable in, in these programming languages, but they're good enough at it that they can muddle their way through tutorials and figure out how to use the SDK and like look at what function calls are available and what API responses look like and, you know, where attributes are missing or like strangely formatted or formed, understand JSON, all that sort of stuff, right? So that is definitely the bar for any company like Stream that has like an API or SDK product, I would say. So that is like, you know, that technical component is something that I look for definitely. But actually like the kind of more important side of things for product managers when I'm looking for candidates for hiring positions to me is actually that customer interaction side of things. Like technical stuff is somewhat easier to teach than like the softer skills of like being good at interacting with people and like the you know really more nuanced skill of like pulling information out of customers and interviews or or even like Slack conversations, emails, all that sort of stuff. So that's actually like the thing that I think is somewhat harder to find for me is, I mean, particularly because I have to have this technical side of thing, finding that marriage of that with like customer interactions, experience and skill. So I really love candidates who have some background in customer success of some kind, you know, either doing a direct, you know, frontline support role of some sort or account management or, you know, some sort of direct interaction with customers I think is like an amazing place to start as a product manager. Particularly, I think that's actually also a really common way that I've seen people get promoted up into a product management role within an organization. If you're doing customer support, you get so familiar with the products and so familiar with understanding what it is that customers are having a hard time with, have pain around, et cetera you actually are super well suited to make that jump into product management. Uh, that's kind of part of what how I got into product management. I didn't really mention this part when we were talking about overview, but like I did in, while I was working in college, I did a year doing like phone tech support for a small internet service provider in the town where I grew up, Durango, Colorado. 
So, you know, talking to people in sometimes that lived in the sticks who are, you know, 70 years old and having a horrible time, like trying to get their internet to work. And like, that is a really humbling experience and makes you really patient and really good at just like listening to people who are having a hard time with stuff, even if like, it's not necessarily your kind of product's fault. And I think that is like so important for product managers that you have to be, you can't take product feedback personally, right? That is like kind of rule number one for me is you have to be able to listen to someone complain about your product. And even if you don't really, if you feel like the, you know, the sort of a pebcac situation problem exists between keyboard and, and chair, you know, the person's maybe using your product wrong or something, you have to have the humility to hear them out and not like just kind of take that stance of, you don't know what you're doing or, you know, you're doing it wrong or things like that. So that customer success background is, is a huge one for me that I, I really look for in candidates. What about growth in their careers? What advice do you have for PMs that are looking to grow, get promoted? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's fairly trite, but I think one of the things that I think is bears repeating is that uh, getting out of your comfort zone is of huge value, right? Accept those opportunities that you're intimidated by, that you're not quite comfortable doing, it, you know, you'll you'll probably have a more stressful few weeks while you're working on whatever project that is. But I think it's worth it, right? You always grow in those situations. That's just kind of how humans work. So somewhat uh, trite, but I think worth it. The other thing I'd say, like one thing that for me that I think was a, a big, a really interesting kind of turning point for me, it's like a very subtle thing, but it's, I think there's like broader implications in the way that you think if you kind of embrace this notion, which is that I try and avoid using the word but and use the word and instead. Like if you kind of like look at the structure of language or sentences, I think you'll actually find that in a lot of cases where we as humans use the word but, you can actually use the word and and the meaning is is effectively the exact same, but it takes a much less kind of adversarial or confrontational approach to the statement. So like, you know, for example, you say like, oh, product manager, I want feature X. And product manager responds and says, well, I'd love to give you feature X, but we have to do these other things first, right? You can say that same thing and just say, I'd love to give you feature X and we need to do these things first, right? The meaning is effectively the exact same, but you create less of a no response and more of a like, I will try and help you accomplish this thing response. I think product managers, you know, by definition of the fact that we like are setting priority and, you know, that the whole reason you set priority is because you can't do everything at once, right? You are in a situation where you're telling people no a lot. And if you're not careful about the way you're doing that, you can really like kind of erode people's confidence in the product, even confidence in your decision making, their positive attitude about like why the prioritization is correct and what makes sense and all that sort of stuff. So I think like, you know, that's a subtle shift I would really encourage people to make is like, don't use but, use and. I think that helps a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about communication skills, influence skills, empathy, you know, as mechanisms for advancement, right? Even yeah. though they need to have your, your technology, you know, background so that they understand the product in your case, you know, an API or how you write to APIs probably more appropriately. But a lot of the promotion kind of aspects aren't a stronger technical skills. It's how well can you work inside an organization? How well do you communicate with customers? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, 100% agree. Absolutely. Talk to me. You know, one of the things I wanted to drill down on the thread is you, you like people coming out of CS. You like people interacting with customers. How often do you tell your product managers they should be talking with customers? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think... <laughs> 
maybe even more so true in the pandemic. You know, maybe this is actually another way in which COVID has been helpful to our profession. But, you know, even that aside, I think the level of digital communication that we have in the world at this point, there's kind of like no excuse for not talking to customers, at least on some level, uh, on a daily basis. So like one of the things I really like that we do at Stream is that for our larger customers where the investment makes a sense to us to like use enough time from people to do this, we have a shared Slack channel from their organization to ours. And so they can just like, you know, ask us questions and we respond. We can ask them questions to get feedback on product changes that we're considering and things like that. And so like, you know, I'd say I'd talk to probably... I don't know, five or six customers a day, at least like in some small interaction. And I think I would very much encourage all product teams, people on my team, certainly to be doing that, right? There's, you know, you've got things like Slack to communicate with people. Email is like very quick and simple to have like kind of side conversations with people. And like another one that I would stress is you can't ever underestimate the value of doing actual live interviews as a product manager. Like, it takes a lot of time. You've got to like schedule these things, recruit people for interviews, actually conduct the interviews, prepare scripts for the interviews, do some sort of debrief to summarize what it is that you've talked about and make sure that it's actionable and useful for you. It's a big investment, right? But I think you, while you can't do that every day, certainly like that, you you'd <laughs> never have enough time for the other things that you need to do if you are doing interviews every single day. But you definitely can't ignore that, right? Like you can't like become complacent that Slack and email are a, an adequate substitute or, or surveys is another one that, that I see people kind of make the mistake. These digital non-interactive forms of communication or, or minimally interactive forms of communications can never fully take the place of customer interviews. And so like I would encourage people to keep doing customer interviews and, you know, probably try and do at least like, I don't know, 10 a quarter or something like that depending on what, where you are in kind of the phase of software development life cycle and, and whether you're kicking off a new product and all that sort of stuff varies, right? But I would say even at the lower end, you should probably be talking, doing like 10 customer interviews a quarter. And, you know, also kind of on top of that, doing some of this lighter touched digital communication, email, Slack, surveys, you know, whatever makes sense for your business. But yeah, I would say always be talking to customers as a product manager, I guess is the the short answer. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Hey, one thing we, we you mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about metrics and I wanted to go back to was NPS. Just from a yeah. standpoint of, I know it's a something you watch. It's a business metric that's important to you. Who owns it in your organization? Is it owned by product or is it owned by CS? Yeah, um, at Stream, product owns NPS. We also like track NPS, you know, based on categories and stuff. So like, we segment out the verbatim feedbacks that we're getting based on whether customers are, you know, talking about sales or CS or particular product features, SDKs, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, product ultimately owns it. And I think for a company, you know, it probably varies a lot by company. I can imagine a company where that wouldn't make as much sense, but, but uh, so much of how our customers see us as a business and or, or, you know, whether they're willing to recommend us to their friends is it ties back to the product, you know, like not just the core functionality, but the kind of broader experience, right? Products is also responsible for documentation of all these APIs. Ultimately, um, you know, we're doing collaboration with our go-to-market team. So how marketing shows up is has a lot to do with product. While we're not doing a lot of the execution, the marketing team is doing, right? Those teams are not technical enough to understand the value of some of these features or the nuances of how they 
you know, what things they should highlight and those sorts of things. So product is still even responsible for helping those teams find success and sales enablement as well, doing trainings for those teams, all that sort of stuff. So it's like I, in an organization like Stream, it all kind of the NPS, like customer, that, that real satisfaction metric really does funnel back to product ultimately. And so I think it does make sense for us to own, but it also it's kind of a Spider-Man thing, right? With great power comes with great responsibility. You know, you you owe a lot to all these organizations to make sure they're well set up for success because, you know, if, if we are seeing a trend where NPS is very low with customers who mention customer success in their verbatims, right? You can't just lump that on customer success. You know, you as a product organization also have to think about like what role you play in customer success's ability to serve customers and make them happy and what things you can change to like enable them to help improve that score and thus improve customer satisfaction. Awesome. Thanks. What's your favorite product? Mm, That's a good question. I have a hard time saying like coming to a favorite because there's a lot of different products that I really like appreciate and admire for a lot of different reasons. One that's been top of mind for me lately, like in the pandemic is Slack, honestly, like I found it interesting how like some people actually like really hate Slack. I like didn't appreciate this until, uh, I don't know, a few conversations a few weeks ago, but like the, you know, Slack and chat in general, you know, certainly get stream as part of this as well, but like it's just becoming a richer and richer platform for communication. You know, it's like one of the most dynamic and changing and evolving digital communication mediums that we have. You know, email is fundamentally the same. I mean, you know, like Google is starting to to roll out AMP. And so we're getting a little bit more interactivity. And, you know, there's companies like Movable Inc. and Rebel Mail that have like tried to create a lot of like creative interactivity in in email. But for the most part, email is just like, you know, paragraphs of text with images embedded. And it has been for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. And, you know, like text messages, the same phone calls, like Zooms, you know, is starting to do slightly more interesting things. But fundamentally, we're like looking at video of each other and talking with audio. But like chat is like really interesting to me in that like there's so much opportunity for it to become more dynamic and interesting. You know, you have like message threads, you have a similar concept of like quoting a message, you've got reactions, you've got, you know, embedded GIFs, like unfurling of links, like the kind of richness of that communication medium is just like really exciting and interesting to me. And also just like, I depend on it so much for how I actually just do my job day to day, like reminding myself about messages, marking messages as unread, like all sorts of of little nuanced features that even 10 years ago, like we wouldn't have expected in any chat, but now that's almost table stakes for, for any place. Like, you know, even like LinkedIn messages have like a mark as unread feature, which you know, it's like, you, you just can't not have it these days. So like just the complexity of, of Slack as a product and like the feature set and stuff is very favorable to me. So Ben, a final question, three words to describe yourself. Mm. Oh man, that's toughy. I guess ambitious is maybe a good one or I, I like driven a little bit more. I'll say driven. I like to think that I'm humble and that I certainly value that in, in how I think about good professionals showing up. And I think maybe the last word that I would, choose is clarity. I think clarity is so much of what good product managers do and what I care about professionally. And, you know, something that as we get more and more information in our world, we have to think more and more about how we keep it clear and concise. Thank you, Ben. appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Thank you, Eric. It's been very fun to chat. <laughs>